Welcome to the Planet Storytime podcast, where we use the power of our imaginations to create pictures in our minds for some of the best stories ever told. We're so glad you could join us today. I'm your host, Thomas Mitchell. Today, we present our first stellar podcast, featuring all our episodes from the previous month. Today's stellar podcast includes Crow and Beetle, The Tale of Peter Rabbit, The Queen Bee, Bremontown Musicians, and The Tale of Mrs. Tiggywinkle, all in one episode. We've also included chapter markers to help you pick your favorite show easily. Now, if you can, take a deep breath and hold it. And let it out. Now, we're ready for today's stories. Remember to use the pictures in your head as you listen to the stories. I hope you enjoy it. The Crow and the Beetle by T.M. Gannam In a thick and thriving wood, abound with creatures of all variety, lived a certain crow and beetle with a rather peculiar relationship. If it were up to the crow, there wouldn't be any relationship at all, except for that of dinner and diner. The beetle would be the dinner, and the crow would be the diner. If it were up to the beetle, there wouldn't be any relationship at all either, other than, Hello there, very well, and have a good day. But you see, the crow had a special taste for beetle creatures, and so desired to have this particular beetle for either breakfast, lunch, or dinner. Not that the crow couldn't find other beetles for its dining needs, but this particular beetle posed a rather remarkable challenge. You see, this beetle was of a certain splendid cleverness that made it quite difficult to be taken for food. No, it was not just another beetle. This beetle was an ever-evolving riddle, mm. and one the crow was determined to solve. But before any of this riddle business started, things were much simpler. I'll try to bring you back to the very beginning of their story together. The very first day they met, the beetle was out and about on one of its daily explores, drinking dewdrops that pool on accommodating leaves and gathering sticks that might look like handy reinforcements to the home nest. When the crow spotted the beetle, ever hungry, the crow saw a delicious midday meal in the plump insect. A bit of a show creature, the crow enjoyed making a presentation of its dining conquests. The crow swept in, wings in full swoop and flutter, creating a gust that rose the wee beetle off its front four feet the final two clutching at the floor. Good day, said the crow. That is, good day for me, for I shall enjoy a juicy beetle feast. Truly, one of my favorites, the crow uttered grandly with a smug beaky smile and then paused for the beetle's reaction. The beetle gently blinked while its clever mind tried to devise a plan to avoid being a snack for the presumptuous crow. Oh, 
well, uh, that will be just fine, said the beetle agreeably. Indeed, I feel so much better now that most, I would say most, of my terrible sickness has left my body. It said as gently as it did slowly. Fabulous, bellowed the crow. Well, then I... Uh, wait, wait just a moment. Terrible sickness. You mentioned something about a terrible sickness in your body? Oh, yes, yes. Terrible indeed. Quite the horror. I, I'm sure it's nothing and most likely won't interfere with the pleasantness of your meal. And then the beetle looked somber and with a half-scrunched face appeared to be pushing something out of its grand, diminutive frame, and then looked upward and around. There was no sound, only the suggestion of one. Uh, perhaps some bitter notes, but I doubt it will cause any real significant stomach pain. You mean tummy aches? I do so hate tummy aches, whispered the crow. Oh, yes, yes, stomach pain is also commonly referred to as tummy aches, the beetle said earnestly. Ahem, well, I see, said the crow, pretending not to sound disappointed. Rallying, he echoed, but you are feeling much better, you say? Oh, yes, considering how severely this illness announced itself, we can only hope it's gone now and won't come back, the beetle paused. Like last time? Last time? Oh, goodness, yes, smarted the beetle. Out of nowhere, like a fierce ocean wave. Fierce ocean wave? Embarked the crow so soft as to not incite one. But what is life if not to engage some risk? Lit the beetle. Risk, indeed, mounted the crow. You know, it seems that I, too, might be suffering from a bit of a, a bug, shall we say. Uh, while I would happily devour you effortlessly at this moment, I'm thinking the better of it. Uh, how's about a rain check? Oh, well, suit yourself, supported the beetle. When you are feeling presently well, simply come calling, and hopefully the hawks won't be sailing around looking for their next meal as well. Hawks? caught the crow. Such a number of them that do so enjoy this part of the wood, but as danger may be everywhere, we might as well go about our business just the same, and don't you agree? Uh, yes, uh, quite, managed the crow, feeling suddenly so tired and defeat and desperate for a shift, it took to the air before issuing, Until we meet again! <laughs> Lengthened by the distance as the crow sifted away through the moist, sun-baked air back to its easy nest for a wee contemplation and fast snooze on an empty tongue. Meanwhile, the beetle in a flit jerked back into its nest and in the way of gathering oneself, bounced its breath down to a slow, steady catch of air and took to gazing at itself in a wee mirror made of a piece of broken, clear soda bottle. It is very unbecoming of one to lie, the beetle scolded itself, holding its eyes in a cold stare. Indeed, the beetle was not feeling ill at all, and there were no more hawks in this part of the wood than anywhere else. And then the beetle reminded itself that it was also unbecoming to scold oneself. 
that crow's going to eat me. It would definitely have been unbecoming to be eaten and digested. Though reckoning further, the beetle swung again. Though to lie is to foul against nature, and if scolding oneself fouls also, I should at least attempt to make good on things. But how? The beetle tapped its pincers, thinking, thinking. That crow, how obnoxiously proud. But of course, who can begrudge a spot of hunger? And we all have our favorite flavors, the beetle empathized. I wouldn't doubt beetle being among the best, the beetle conceded humbly. And there's no doubt that the crow's hunger shall return. And then suddenly the beetle erupted. I have just the thing. Like a charge of lightning, it darted to its backyard, where lining the perimeter was literally a self-made fence about which the beetle's own discarded shells shed for its entire life, lay in consecutive order adjacent to one another, forming its own private barrier, circumambulating the wee property. The strong desire to right the wrong of falsehood allowed the beetle to suffer an opening in the enclosure and carefully remove one of the shells, leaving a section open to the wild wood. Eagerly, the beetle shimmied to the stove and applied the oven to an ample swell, and then straight away took to crushing the shell, pestle to mortar. The beetle then reached for jars containing the sweets of maple sap and persimmon, the sour of crabapples and marjoram, and the bitters of walnut and sycamore bark, and mixed the bunch into a potent mass upon which it poured the thick cream of milkweed stock, and stirred it to a puffy quaff, and then transported the batch to a baking tin and added it to the oven, judging the time for three whippoorwill calls. The beetle waited for a spell as the forest considered the evening and waited, and then it heard the distant happy call. Ah, all done, the beetle exclaimed after checking the pie by inserting its left foreleg. Clean as a whistle. The beetle carefully removed the piping hot confection and set it on the edge of the stovetop to cool. Has the crow ever sampled beetle shell pie before? The beetle wondered. The beetle quickly packed up the sweet and savory pie and fastened it to the traveling harness and then the harness to its regal body and followed its extraordinary sense of smell to the crow's roost. Upon arriving, the beetle observed the crow staring blankly through a rhomboid crevice in the hearty sticks of the nest, as if pondering the absurdity of life, until the drag of the beetle's approaching feet startled the crow's head back to face the beetle, whose smile and outstretched legs presented beetle-shell pie. The crow jumped upright and towered over the gracious beetle, who confidently ordered the crow to... Sit down, please, and won't you? The crow, miffed by such presumption, screeched, Beetle, the nerve to find me at my branch and command me in my nest. Ah, quite the same as you did me. Quite. We'll be right back. 
Hey parents! Yeah, you! Are you looking for a podcast your kids will really love? Well, we made one just for you. And for us. As genuine, all-natural kids ourselves, we know what makes a fun and interesting podcast. So we decided to make it ourselves. Every show is packed with interviews, stories, and on-the-ground reporting. We have interviewed everyone from scientists to Grammy Award-winning musicians to NFL quarterbacks. Listen to Wild Interest wherever you get your podcasts. The beetle observed. Ah, uh, um, uh, <clears throat> stammered the crow. And to you I bring food, whereas you would um, take me as food. Isn't that right? Ar, ar, the crow found no words with which to respond. No matter to speak of it. We all do what we must to survive, but wouldn't it be so much better if we were to do so kindly? Yes. Anywho, that is why I am here today, actually. I am trying to survive the kindest way I can, the beetle said, attempting to sound pleasant, and cleared its wee throat and rescued, Shall you some beetle shell pie? Made from my own shell three springs ago. I am sure you'll enjoy it. There was a long pause before the crow could speak. Oh, my! dripped the crow slowly, realizing what was happening. So terribly kind. The crow's eyes moistened as its elegant beaks delicately clasped the pie tin and gently transferred it to the table. Please, have some, encouraged the beetle. The crow was still in the way of one collecting oneself and paused further. Won't you join me? requested the crow, hopefully. Oh, no, thank you, said the beetle gently. I must never get too full of myself. It is all for you. I realize you would prefer to have the whole of me, but I am simply not quite that generous of a soul. Oh, dear me, the crow interrupted. I believe you are quite generous indeed, and snatched a morsel of the pie with its long beak. Mmm, fabulous, issued the crow, tilting its noble head from side to side, and continued, perhaps not quite so fabulous as dining real flesh, something about the juicy parts. The crow went on perhaps too liberally, and upon realizing this, pinched its stout tongue between the tips of its beak to suspend yet another word. Seeing the look in the crow's eye, the beetle determined its work there was done and started to sashay to the edge of the branch and offered farewell. Until next time, the beetle called, firming up its harness and scuttling away. Until next... But before the crow could utter full reciprocity, it saw the wee beetle suddenly descended upon by an ornery robin who nipped the whirlwinded beetle between its beaky clasps and began to lift off when the indignant crow instinctively slapped the air vigorously with its lengthy wings and called a mighty shriek that stunned the robin into releasing his clench, suspending the beetle in midair for three flaps of the departing robin's wings until the now-falling beetle pulled out its seldom-used pocket wings and elegantly navigated the tree's upper limbs 
until the beetle lit safely, not to mention handsomely, on a fat bough several feet below the crow's nest. The crow looked down at the beetle. The beetle stared up at the crow. The crow and the beetle held stare in a shared knowing that theirs was a strange yet special relationship. The beetle tipped its pincers at the crow and began to descend the tree back to its home in the inner nook of the forest. Until next time, called the crow, watching what would have been such a delicious meal simply walk away. The crow thought that despite the beetle's kindness and despite the crow's own brand of heroism, the crow still wasn't convinced it could repeat such restraint upon their next encounter. Uh, and I shall cross that bridge when I come to it. The crow consoled itself and began feasting upon the beetle shell pie with great delight, with both the crow and the beetle living to see another day. Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits, and their names were Flopsy, Mopsy, Cottontail, and Peter. They lived with their mother in a sandbank underneath the root of a very big fir tree. Now, my dears, said old Mrs. Rabbit one morning, you may go into the fields or down the lane, but don't go into Mr. McGregor's garden. Your father had an accident there. He was put into a pie by Mrs. McGregor. Now, run along. Don't get into mischief. I'm going out. Then old Mrs. Rabbit took a basket and her umbrella and went through the wood to the baker's. She bought a loaf of brown bread and five currant buns. Flopsy, Mopsy, and Cottontail, who were good little bunnies, went down the lane together to gather blackberries. But Peter, who was very naughty, ran straight away to Mr. McGregor's garden and squeezed under the gate. First he ate some lettuces and some French beans, and then he ate some radishes, and then, feeling rather sick, he went to look for some parsley. But round the end of a cucumber frame, whom should he meet but Mr. McGregor? Mr. McGregor was on his hands and knees, planting out young cabbages. But he jumped up and ran after Peter, waving a rake and calling out, Stop thief! But Peter was most dreadfully frightened. He rushed all over the garden, for he had forgotten the way back to the gate. He lost one shoe among the cabbages and the other amongst the potatoes. After losing them, he ran on four legs and went faster, so that I think he might have got away altogether if he had not unfortunately run into a gooseberry net and got caught by the large buttons on his jacket. It was a blue jacket with brass buttons, quite new. Peter gave himself up for lost and shed big tears. But his sobs were overheard by some friendly sparrows who flew to him in great excitement and implored him to exert himself. Mr. McGregor came up with a sieve, which he intended to pop on the top of Peter, but Peter wriggled out just in time. Leaving his jacket behind him, he rushed into the tool shed and jumped into a can. 
It would have been a beautiful thing to hide in if it had not had so much water in it. Mr. McGregor was quite sure that Peter was somewhere in the tool shed, perhaps hidden underneath a flower pot. He began to turn them over carefully, looking under each. Presently, Peter sneezed. Mr. McGregor was after him in no time and tried to put his foot upon Peter, who jumped out of a window, upsetting three plants. Peter sat down to rest. He was out of breath and trembling with fright. He had not the least idea which way to go. Also, he was very damp with sitting in that can. After a time, he began to wander about, going lippity, lippity, not very fast, and looking all around. He found a door in a wall, but it was locked, and there was no room for a fat little rabbit to squeeze underneath. An old mouse was running in and out over the stone doorstep, carrying peas and beans to her family in the wood. Peter asked her the way to the gate, but she had such a large pea in her mouth she could not answer. She only shook her head at him. Peter began to cry. Then he tried to find his way straight across the garden, but he became more and more puzzled. Presently, he came to a pond where Mr. McGregor filled his water cans. A white cat was staring at some goldfish. She sat very, very still. But now and then, the tip of her tail twitched as if it were alive. Peter thought it best to go away without speaking to her. He had heard about cats from his cousin, little Benjamin Bunny. He went back towards the tool shed, but suddenly, quite close to him, he heard the noise of a hoe. Peter scudded underneath the bushes, but presently, as nothing happened, he came out and climbed upon a wheelbarrow and peeped over. The first thing he saw was Mr. McGregor hoeing onions. His back was turned toward Peter, and beyond him was the gate. Peter got down very quietly off the wheelbarrow and started running as fast as he could go along a straight walk behind some black currant bushes. Mr. McGregor caught sight of him at the corner, but Peter did not care. He slipped underneath the gate and was safe at last in the wood outside the garden. Mr. McGregor hung up the little jacket and the shoes for a scarecrow to frighten the blackbirds. Peter never stopped running or looked behind him till he got home to the big fir tree. He was so tired that he flopped down upon the nice soft sand on the floor of the rabbit hole and shut his eyes. His mother was busy cooking. She wondered what he had done with his clothes. It was the second little jacket and pair of shoes that Peter had lost in a fortnight. I am sorry to say that Peter was not well during the evening. His mother put him to bed and made some chamomile tea, and she gave a dose of it to Peter. One teaspoonful to be taken at bedtime. But Flopsy, Mopsy, and Cottontail had bread and milk and blackberries for supper. The Queen Bee 
two king's sons once started to seek adventures and fell into a wild, reckless way of living and gave up all thoughts of going home again. Their third and youngest brother, who was called Whitling and had remained behind, started off to seek them, and when at last he found them, they jeered at his simplicity in thinking that he could make his way in the world while they, who were so much cleverer, were unsuccessful. But they all three went on together until they came to an anthill, which the two eldest brothers wished to stir up, that they might see the little ants hurry about in their fright and carrying off their eggs. But Whitling said, Leave the little creatures alone. I will not suffer them to be disturbed. And they went on further until they came to a lake, where a number of ducks were swimming about. The two eldest brothers wanted to catch a couple and cook them, but Whitling would not allow it, and said, Leave the little creatures alone. I will not suffer them to be killed. And then they came to a bee's nest in a tree, and there was so much honey in it that it overflowed and ran down the trunk. The two eldest brothers then wanted to make a fire beneath the tree that the bees might be stifled by the smoke, and then they could get at the honey. But Whitling prevented them, saying, Leave the little creatures alone. I will not suffer them to be stifled. At last the three brothers came to a castle, where there were in the stables many horses standing, all of stone, and the brothers went through all the rooms until they came to a door at the end, secured with three locks, and in the middle of the door a small opening through which they could look into the room. And they saw a little grey-haired man sitting at a table. They called out to him once, twice, and he did not hear. But at the third time he got up, undid the locks, and came out. Without speaking a word, he led them to a table loaded with all sorts of good things, and when they had eaten and drunk, he showed to each his bedchamber. The next morning the little grey man came to the eldest brother, and beckoning him, brought him to a table of stone, on which were written three things directing by what means the castle could be delivered from its enchantment. The first thing was that in the wood, under the moss, lay the pearls belonging to the princess, a thousand in number, and they were to be sought for and collected. And if he who should undertake the task had not finished it by sunset, if but one pearl were missing, he must be turned to stone. So the eldest brother went out and searched all day. But at the end of it, he had only found one hundred. Just as was said on the table of stone came to pass, and he was turned into stone. The second brother undertook the adventure next day, but it fared with him no better than with the first. He found two hundred pearls, and was turned into stone. And so at last it was Whitling's turn, and he began to search in the moss. But it was a very tedious business to find the pearls, and he grew so out of heart that he sat down on a stone and began to weep. As he was sitting thus, up came the Ant King with five thousand ants, whose lives had been saved through Whitling's pity, 
and it was not very long before the little insects had collected all the pearls and put them in a heap. Now the second thing ordered by the table of stone was to get the key of the princess's sleeping chamber out of the lake. And when Whitling came to the lake, the ducks whose lives he had saved came swimming and dived below and brought up the key from the bottom. The third thing that had to be done was the most difficult, and that was to choose out the youngest and loveliest of the three princesses as they lay sleeping. All bore a perfect resemblance each to the other, and only differed in this, that before they went to sleep each one had eaten a different sweetmeat, the eldest a piece of sugar, the second a little syrup, and the third a spoonful of honey. Now the queen bee of those bees that Whitling had protected from the fire came at this moment, and trying the lips of all three, settled on those of the one that had eaten honey. And so it was that the king's son knew which to choose. Then the spell was broken. Every one awoke from stony sleep and took their right form again. And Whitling married the youngest and loveliest princess and became king after her father's death. But his two brothers, who thought they were so special, were quite humbled. The Bremen Town Musicians A certain man had a donkey, which had carried the corner sacks to the mill indefatigably for many a long year. But his strength was going and he was growing more and more unfit for work. Then his master began to consider how he might best save his keep. But the donkey, seeing that no good wind was blowing, ran away and set out on the road to Bremen. There, he thought, I can surely be town musician. When he had walked some distance, he found a hound lying on the road, gasping like one who had run till he was tired. "'What are you gasping so for, you big fella?' asked the donkey. "'Ah,' replied the hound, "'as I am old and daily grow weaker and no longer can hunt, "'my master wanted to kill me, so I took to flight. "'But now, how am I to earn my bread?' "'I tell you what,' said the donkey, "'I am going to Bremen and shall be town musician there.' Go with me and engage yourself also as a musician. I will play the lute, and you shall beat the kettle drum. The hound agreed, and on they went. Before long they came to a cat, sitting on the path, with a face like three rainy days. Now then, old shaver, what has gone askew with you? asked the donkey. Who can be merry when his neck is in danger? answered the cat. "'because I am now getting old, and my teeth are worn to stumps, "'and I prefer to sit by the fire and spin, rather than hunt about after mice. "'My mistress wanted to drown me, so I ran away. "'But now good advice is scarce. Where am I to go?' "'Go with us to Bremen. You understand night music, so you can be a town musician.' The cat thought well of it, and went with them. After this, the three fugitives came to a farmyard, where the rooster was sitting upon the gate, crowing with all his might. "'Your crow goes through and through one,' said the donkey. "'What is the matter?' 
I have been foretelling fine weather, because it is the day on which Our Lady washes the Christ child's little shirts and wants to dry them, said the rooster. But guests are coming for Sunday, so the housewife has no pity, and has told the cook that she intends to eat me in the soup tomorrow, and this evening I am to have my head cut off. Now I am crowing at full pitch while I can. Ah, but Redcomb, said the donkey, you had better come away with us. We are going to Bremen. You can find something better than death everywhere. You have a good voice, and if we make music together, it must have some quality. The rooster agreed to this plan, and all four went on together. They could not, however, reach the city of Bremen in one day. And in the evening, they came to a forest where they meant to pass the night. The donkey and the hound laid themselves down under a large tree. The cat and the rooster settled themselves in the branches, but the rooster flew right to the top where he was most safe. Before he went to sleep, he looked round on all the four sides and thought he saw in the distance a little spark burning. So he called out to his companions that there must be a house not far off, for he saw a light. The donkey said, If so, we had better get up and go on, for the shelter here is bad. The hound thought that a few bones with some meat on would do him good too. So they made their way to the place where the light was, and soon saw it shine brighter and grow larger until they came to a well-lighted robber's house. The donkey, as the biggest, went to the window and looked in. "'What do you see, my grey horse?' asked the rooster. "'What do I see?' answered the donkey. "'A table covered with good things to eat and drink, and robbers sitting at it, enjoying themselves.' "'That would be the sort of thing for us,' said the rooster. "'Then the animals took counsel together "'how they should manage to drive away the robbers, "'and at last they thought of a plan. "'The donkey was to place himself with his four feet "'upon the window ledge. "'The hound was to jump on the donkey's back. "'The cat was to climb upon the dog. "'And lastly, the rooster was to fly up "'and perch upon the head of the cat.' When this was done, at a given signal, they began to perform their music together. The donkey brayed, the hound barked, the cat mewed, and the rooster crowed. Then they burst through the window into the room so that the glass clattered. At this horrible din, the robbers sprang up, thinking no otherwise that a ghost had come in and fled in a great fright out into the forest. The four companions now sat down at the table, well content with what was left, and ate as if they were going to fast for a month. As soon as the four minstrels had done, they put out the light, and each sought for himself a sleeping place, according to his nature and to what suited him. The donkey laid himself down upon some straw in the yard, the hound behind the door, the cat upon the hearth near the warm ashes, and the rooster perched himself upon a beam of the roof. And being tired with their long walk, they soon went to sleep.
when it was past midnight, and the robbers saw from afar that the light was no longer burning in the house, and all appeared quiet. The captain said, We ought not to have let ourselves be frightened out of our wits, and ordered one of them to go and examine the house. The messenger, finding all still, went into the kitchen to light a candle, and taking the glistening, fiery eyes of the cat for live coals, he held a lucifer match to them to light it. But the cat did not understand the joke, and flew in his face, spitting and scratching. He was dreadfully frightened, and ran to the back door. But the dog, who lay there, sprang up and bit his leg. And as he ran across the yard by the straw heap, the donkey gave him a smart kick with its hind foot. The rooster, too, who had been awakened by the noise and had become lively, cried down from the beam, Then the robber ran back as far as he could to his captain and said, Ah, there is a horrible witch sitting in the house who spat on me and scratched my face with her long claws, and by the door stands a man with a knife who stabbed me in the leg, and in the yard there lies a black monster who beat me with a wooden club, and above, upon the roof, sits the judge who called out, Bring the rogue here to me. So I got away as well as I could. After this, the robbers did not trust themselves in the house again, but it suited the four musicians of Bremen so well that they did not care to leave it any more, and the mouth of him who last told this story is still warm. The Tale of Mrs. Tiggywinkle by Beatrix Potter Once upon a time there was a little girl called Lucy who lived at a farm called Littletown. She was a good little girl, only she was always losing her pocket handkerchiefs. One day little Lucy came into the farmyard crying. Oh, she did cry so. I've lost my pocket hankin. Three hankins and a penny. Have you seen them, Tabby Kitten? The kitten went on washing her white paws, so Lucy asked a speckled hen, Sally Hennypenny, have you found three pocket hankins? The speckled hen ran into a barn, clucking, oh, I go barefoot, barefoot, barefoot. Then Lucy asked Mr. Robin sitting on a twig. Mr. Robin looked sideways at Lucy with his bright black eye, and he flew over a stile and away. Lucy climbed upon the stile and looked up at the hill behind Littletown, a hill that goes up, up, into the clouds as though it had no top. And a great way up the hillside, she thought she saw some white things spread upon the grass. Lucy scrambled up the hill as fast as her stout legs would carry her. She ran along a steep pathway, up and up, until Littletown was right away down below. She could have dropped a pebble down the chimney. Presently she came to a spring bubbling out from the hillside. 
Someone had stood a tin can upon a stone to catch the water. But the water was already running over, for the can was no bigger than an egg cup. And where the sand upon the path was wet, there were footmarks of a very small person. Lucy ran on and on. The path ended under a big rock. The grass was short and green, and there were clothes, props cut from bracken stems with lines of plated rushes, and a heap of tiny clothespins, but no pocket handkerchiefs. There was something else, a door, straight into the hill, and inside it someone was singing. Lucy knocked once, twice, and interrupted the song. A little frightened voice called out, oh, Who's that? Lucy opened the door, and what do you think was there inside the hill? A nice clean kitchen with a flagged floor and wooden beams just like any other farm kitchen. Only the ceiling was so low that Lucy's head nearly touched it, and the pots and pans were small, and so was everything there. There was a nice, hot, singy smell, and at the table, with an iron in her hand, stood a very stout, short person staring anxiously at Lucy. The print gown was tucked up, and she was wearing a large apron over her striped petticoat. Her little black nose went sniffle, 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 and her eyes went twinkle, twinkle. And underneath her cap, where Lucy had yellow curls, that little person had prickles. Who are you? said Lucy. Have you seen my pocket hankins? The little person made a bob curtsy. Yes, if you please, um, uh, my name is Mrs. Tickywinkle. I'm an excellent clear starcher. And then she took something out of a clothes basket and spread it on the ironing blanket. What's that thing? said Lucy. That's not my pocket hankin. Oh, no, if you please, um, that's a little scarlet waistcoat belonging to Mr. Robin. And she ironed it and folded it and put it on one side. Then she took something else off a clothes horse. That isn't my penny, said Lucy. Oh, no. If you please, um, that's a tablecloth belonging to Jenny Wren. Look how it's stained with currant wine. It's very bad to wash, said Mrs. Tiggywinkle. Mrs. Tiggywinkle's nose went sniffle, sniffle, snuffle, and her eyes went twinkle, twinkle, and she fetched another hot iron from the fire. There's one of my pocket hankins, cried Lucy, and there's my penny. Mrs. Tiggywinkle ironed it and goffered it and shook out the frills. Oh, that is lovely, said Lucy. And what are those long yellow things with fingers like gloves? Oh, that's a pair of stockings belonging to Sally Hennypenny. Look how she's worn the heels out with scratching in the yard. She'll very soon go barefoot, said Mrs. Tiggywinkle. Why, there's another hankersniff. But it isn't mine. It's red. Oh, no. If you please, um, that one belongs to old Mrs. Rabbit, and it did so smell of onions, I've had to wash it separately. I can't get out the smell. There's another one of mine, said Lucy. 
What are those funny little white things? That's a pair of mittens belonging to Tabby Kitten. I only have to iron them. She washes them herself. There's my last pocket hankin, said Lucy. And what are you dipping into the basin of starch? Their little dicky shirt fronts belonging to Tom Titmouse. Most terrible particular, said Mrs. Tiggywinkle. Now I've finished my ironing. I'm going to air some clothes. What are those dear soft fluffy things, said Lucy. Oh, those are woolly coats belonging to the little lambs at Skelgill. Look at the sheep mark on the shoulder. And here's one marked for Kate's Garth, and three that come from Little Town. They're always marked at washing, said Mrs. Tickywinkle. And she hung up all sorts of sizes of clothes, small brown coats of mice, and one velvety black moleskin waistcoat, and a red tail coat with no tail belonging to Squirrel Nutkin, and a very much shrunk blue jacket belonging to Peter Rabbit, and a petticoat not marked that had gone lost in the washing, and at last the basket was empty. Then Mrs. Tickywinkle made tea, a cup for herself and a cup for Lucy. They sat before the fire on a bench and looked sideways at one another. Mrs. Tiggywinkle's hand holding the teacup was very, very brown and very, very wrinkly with the soap suds. And all through her gown and her cap, there were hairpins sticking wrong end out so that Lucy didn't like to sit too near her. They had finished tea They tied up the clothes and bundles, and Lucy's pocket handkerchiefs were folded up inside her clean penny and fastened with a silver safety pin. Then they made up the fire with turf and came out and locked the door and hid the key under the door sill. Away down the hill trotted Lucy and Mrs. Tiggywinkle with the bundle of clothes. All the way down the path, little animals came out of the fern to meet them. The very first that they met were Peter Rabbit and Benjamin Bunny. And she gave them their nice clean clothes, and all the little animals and birds were so very much obliged to dear Mrs. Tickywinkle that at the bottom of the hill, when they came to the stile, there was nothing left to carry except Lucy's one little bundle. Lucy scrambled up the stile with the bundle in her hand, and then she turned to say good night and to thank the washerwoman. But what a very odd thing! Mrs. Tickywinkle had not waited either for thanks or for the washing bill. She was running, running, running up the hill. And where was her white frilled cap? And her shawl? And her gown? And her petticoat? And how small she had grown, and how brown, and covered with prickles. Why, Mrs. Tiggywinkle was nothing but a hedgehog. The End I hope you enjoyed our first stellar podcast for the month of September. If you enjoy the Planet Storytime podcast and would like to support the show, please click the subscribe button on your podcast player and tell your friends about us. You can also support us with contributions on our Patreon page. Simply go to patreon.com and search for the Planet Storytime podcast. 
You can also reach out to us with suggestions, requests, and questions by email at planet.storytime at gmail.com. Now, you may be wondering where our beautiful music comes from. Well, it comes from the great mind of my dear friend, Paxton Stanley. Both Paxton and I would like to thank you and everyone for your amazing support. Until next time, remember to keep using your imagination and see just how powerful your mind truly is. Goodbye for now.